This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of The Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Matthew 24, 1-35, in which Jesus calls his disciples' attention to the things that are to come. Together, we will be discussing the importance of focusing on Jesus as a means of preparation for faithful living. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast. Uh, back with you to just continue our conversation on uh, Matthew. Uh, just as a reminder, we closed out Matthew chapter 23 last week when we looked at verses 25 through 39. And in these verses, we finished the conversation on uh, Jesus's woes, which were warnings against hypocrisy. And as a result of that, uh, we discussed the importance of focusing on the root or our relationship with Jesus uh, from which the fruit is produced. Uh, this week, we're going to transition or shift into Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we've got a little bit bigger of a passage this week as we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 35. Um, and this conversation is going to be a response to questions that are asked of Jesus and often this chapter is entitled uh, The Destruction of the Temple and the Signs of the End Times, and we'll get into that as as we discuss it. Uh, but before we start our discussion, I believe we have Derek reading our passage this week. So Derek, would you read Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35? Yeah. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention Call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never 
to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right. Thank you for reading that for us, Derek. Uh, let's go ahead and jump in on this conversation. Um, where might it be important for us to start? So I think at the very beginning of chapter 24, we it's important for us to recognize what kind of prompts Jesus to have this conversation. And we have in our mind, I guess, this image that Jesus is walking along and his, his disciples are coming up on Jerusalem and they're just in awe of the majesty of the city and pointing to out all the incredible buildings they're seeing. I, I think of some of the big cities that we visit and you can just, you can, you know, sit there in just awe of the architecture and how huge and, and magnificent everything is. And so I imagine the disciples were kind of having some of the similar conversations that we have when we encounter a new city uh, for the first time. And Jesus kind of picks up on that and being relevant to their conversation, uses it as a teaching moment and says, hey, I want to talk to you about these things all this magnificence that you see here, it's going to be laid to waste. And the disciples are kind of, I think, caught off guard by this. And all of a sudden their conversation and thoughts maybe, maybe shift from tourist mindset to, oh, I got to, what, what's he trying to teach us? What's he trying to show us? And so they begin by asking questions and they ask really two questions. So the first, uh, both of them are found in verse three. The first is, when will this happen? And then the second question is, what will be the sign that this is about to happen? And so um, Jesus kind of then goes into this discourse that is going to answer both of these questions, and he's actually going to focus most of his attention for our passage today on discussing the signs of the coming and the end of the age. And so um, our verses today, through verse 35 roughly, are going to predominantly focus on the sign, and then towards the end of our set of passages, you'll begin to see a, a little bit of a shift into the answering of that question of when. 
Um, and then that'll take us into our conversation that we'll be having next week where we go into to verse 36 and Jesus really hashes out the win. Yeah, and I think the the other thing, um, maybe less to do with the explicit context of like exactly like the movement of what's going on around this passage, but also still to do with the context of how we understand this passage is um, I, I think, especially just because of the title of it, right? I, in my, in my Bible, it says it's the destruction of the temple and signs of the end times. Um, and as you read these things, like, it's it's very easy to read them and immediately assume like this is apocalyptic conversation. This is like left behind status in times, right? Like when Jesus is going to come back, his second coming and and rescue or, or call back um, the, the, those who follow him. Um, and so it's easy to think about this passage and and immediately turn our attention. I think I I have uh, historically a lot. And probably most of us do thinking of it as a more long-term conversation. Like this is something that is still ahead of us. Um, but I believe uh, verse 34 kind of challenges that where it says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so when we're confronted with verse 34, I feel like it begins to encourage us to step backward uh, from maybe the assumptions we would typically carry into it and say, okay, so Jesus is saying this generation won't pass away until they've seen all these things. So these things must have happened. And so as we work through this passage, it's probably, it's appropriate for us to recognize them, each of the observations, each of the statements as, as something that Jesus is pointing to kind of in the immediate and near future for those who are listening. And I, I think that we can pretty clearly make that connection based on what a generation meant in their time frame. A generation was roughly 40 years. And so if Jesus is talking around AD 30, then this would be 40 years later would have been AD 70 was, is approximately the time of the destruction of the temple. And so that seems to, to be an easy connection for at least looking at it now. With the study sure. that we've done, it seems to be an easy connection to to make. And I like to add to this conversation with apocalyptic or even prophetic literature. Just in sure. in general, we see the the prophecies of the prophets from the Old Testament. We see multiple fulfillments mm-hmm. of these prophecies. So, um, and there's many many examples of these. We won't go into that in this episode, um, but Jesus himself um, quotes several of the the fulfillments of these prophecies in himself as the Messiah, trying to point... Matthew, we've talked about many of them. Matthew will use um, prophecies from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and fulfilling a prophecy from the Old Testament that has already been fulfilled in another way um, in the Old Testament. And so you see dual fulfillment of prophecies. And so it would it wouldn't be out of... I guess it wouldn't be unusual for this to also have dual multiple, we won't even say two, but multiple fulfillments of this, this prophecy as well. Sure. So some of these prophecies, Derek, as you already mentioned, um, the, the destruction of the temple that Jesus is referring to in, 
in verse, I guess, in verse two, when he says, do you see all these things? He asked, truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And so the fulfillment of that prophecy, as, as, as you mentioned, Derek, is, occurs in 70 um, AD. And this is the result of the first Jewish Roman war. And so that, that conflict led to this, this massive destruction of the temple um, and, and really a time of extreme confusion and, and chaos for the Jewish people. Well, and surrounding that was, I mean, before the temple was actually destroyed, that that was like the result of a six-month-long siege of Jerusalem where these people were experiencing uh, pretty tough situations, situations that are brought up in here, like, like people who were starving and people who uh, were turning against each other because uh, they were they were not trusting each other. And with all the pressure that was coming in around them, like it was just turning uh, people who used to be neighbors against each other. Historians believe that there would have even been some cannibalism and stuff going on because of the severity of the, the starvation and the blockades that were, that were causing um, this sort of catastrophic event. And so, and so a lot of that we read about, um, as you as you pointed out, Nick, in the, in the next couple of verses, and I, another one I wanted to point out, another uh, interesting, I guess, historical fulfillment of the prophe- prophecies, is mentioned in verse fifteen. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days. And he goes on, uh, Jesus goes on to continue to talk about, about this. And, um, this prophecy, which was first prophesied in, in Daniel, and there's mention of it in chapter nine, verse 27, 11, verse 31 and 12, verse 11, all in the book, book of Daniel. Um, but this, this this prophecy about the abomination that causes desolation, scholars think that this actually refers to the temple to Jupiter, which was built on the temple mount. And so this would have been built on essentially the holy place. And so it fits this description perfectly. And as a result of this temple to Jupiter existing on the holy place, the Jewish people feel this strong need and compulsion to advocate for the God who's being desecrated by this, this wicked act. And so they go and they, they attempt to take back control and they succeed for, for a short time. But then we read in 135 AD, just a couple of years later, they are conquered again, um, in another, uh, conflict. And this, this conflict is, looked at by historians as extremely horrific. Um, many refer to it as a genocide of the Jewish people. And, and so I I can't help, but knowing the history that goes along with this, right. We can see this with, with more clarity than they could when this was a spoken prophetic word. But when Jesus says this, he says, 
then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. No one come back, right? When, when, when they construct this abomination that causes desolation on the holy place, when that happens, you flee. And I can't help but feel like this was Jesus with the foresight, knowing what was coming for them. So with those context pieces, and maybe there will be more to come, but with those context pieces, um, what are you guys seeing as we start to work through this passage? The, the very first thing that I notice is Jesus leaving the temple and the disciples calling his attention to the buildings related to the temple. And as I was studying this out, like there was this connection made of, of Jesus leaving the temple and there being no record of him returning. And so it's almost as if God is leaving, you know, the, the temple. And um, there's this reference back to, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, yeah. And so uh, that's the first thing that sticks out to me is just Jesus leaving the temple and the significance of what that kind of represents as we work toward this point of destruction that he's, he's about to tell them about. So the temple in this day being understood as the place for the presence of God. And as you referenced in Ezekiel, like the the movement of the presence of God out um, as, as his presence departed, and then you see that happening again here, where Jesus being the presence of God on earth leaves the temple as, as a show of and goes the to the same God. place, because in Ezekiel it said, left to go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus leaves, and he's going to the Mount of Olives. And so it's almost like a... So you have parallels there. Yeah. So as a result of this parallel between what we're seeing here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24 with Ezekiel and you know the presence of God departing in Ezekiel and the presence of God through Christ departing in Matthew, um, it kind of made me makes me ask the question, well, what resulted in God's departure in Ezekiel? And, and the answer is it was, it was Israel's unfaithfulness. It was their unwillingness to find themselves obedient unto him, unto him in all things. It, it was their desire to seek the help of other nations. It was their desire to reflect other nations. It was their, it, it was their unfaithfulness that resulted in God's departure. And, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus has been challenging the what what I think could be understood as the the representatives of the Israelites, right? Like you have the the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have like the the religious um, class that he's been challenging them and, and identifying that they have been unfaithful, that they have not um, done, been walking in obedience with him. They've kind of been going their own way. They've been writing their own rules. And so just as in Ezekiel, God leaves as a result of unfaithfulness, Jesus is walking away. And I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say he is walking away as a result of their unfaithfulness and their unwillingness to turn to him. Which then if I think about it like that, like if this is what God does in the Old Testament and this is what God does in the New Testament, would it be too far of a stretch for us to say this is what we could expect God to do even today? 
I guess until you brought this parallel up, I didn't think about the fact that we're talking about, so Ezekiel's talking about the destruction of essentially the first temple. And then here you have like the prophesying of the destruction of the second temple. So very similar, like God departs and destruction. And like, as we like move forward in this, it, it, it almost feels like Jesus is offering a caution to the disciples, like in these statements of like not being deceived and all these things that he's talking about, these, these signs. And I mean, he's, I mean, I feel like we're still being offered those today. So I, I don't think that it's necessarily, um, a stretch to say that this is still applicable to us. Like we can still say, like find ourselves in this idea of being prepared. And and I feel like that's where Jesus was like working toward by the questions, uh, uh, by working through the questions that, that they've asked. I've got all the questions now when we think about like the whole temple conversation. So what does it look like then today? Like if if like walking in unfaithfulness is going to result in God's departure from <clears throat> the place of, like the rep, the place that represents His presence, what's He going to depart from today? Is He departing from the church? Is He departing from us? Us individuals. as individuals? Like, and what does that look like? For them, it looked like literally a building was ripped apart twice. What does it look like for us today that, that God would depart from us? I feel like it's all speculation. It's all speculation, but that it's just like all these questions that I have buzzing around. I mean, yeah, the implication is that we are the temple. We're the new temple. So the implication is that as a result of disobedience, general disobedience, corporate disobedience, the spirit would depart or be silenced, right? Because right now, basically, our experience of God is he speaks. And so would he be quieted? Would he be silenced? Would his power be suppressed? Would we fail to see as many miracles? I think when we live like they were living in this time, he can walk right out of the temple and nobody knows his presence is gone. That's the scary part. It's not that we can, like we, we build these churches and we build these buildings and we do all these things and we can do them all like we've heard it before. We can do it all without Jesus and nobody will know the difference. And it feels like that's the, like that's the warning that he's laying down before the disciples. Like they didn't even get it and they were walking with him for three years. Like he walks out of the temple. It like signifies the presence of God leaving, and they don't even catch it because they're so focused on the buildings and not like the reason that they come to the building. I think um, verse ten and eleven, or well, ten and twelve, can maybe pointing to what can happen when it's when the presence is removed. And they, many will turn away from their faith. And they will betray and hate each other. And in 12 says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Which is crazy. Because immediately when you read that, 
the verse that came to my mind was, they will know you are my followers by how you love one another. Mm-hmm. And so if the departure of his presence for us today looks like our love growing cold, then the hope of people knowing, seeing Jesus begins to disappear. With every heart that grows cold, the opportunity for somebody to see him diminishes. And yet, after after those things are said, there's still hope delivered, like a verse later. Mm-hmm. Well, really, 13 and, 13 14. and 14. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And we sat and talked at our table and... I've found myself in this place before, too. Like, we only assume that God can operate through people. Like, God can only do that. And, I mean, I know that He chooses to work through us, and He wants to wants to work through us, but He doesn't need us. And for us to think that He needs us is kind of, like, arrogant, because I can look at Paul and see that he didn't need anyone mm-hmm. to do what he can do. Um, that's not to say like that absolves me from, um, but I'm not the presence. The presence of Jesus can live through me, but I am not the presence of Jesus. And so, um, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. Like, I just don't think that we can be so arrogant to think that we can be the only way. Like God, God is the God of all creation, whether it comes through whatever. I mean, I think we can be just like the buildings, like the the architecture, how it looked probably so magnificent to them. We can stand out in creation and look and see like, look at this beautiful thing that God has created. Well, I would, I would, I would say I, I agree. I think, to to assume that we are the presence of God is definitely overstating our position in the situation. Um, at the same time, I mean, we at the end of Matthew, like Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and so go and make disciples. So it's like, even though we are not the presence of Christ, we are a vessel, we are the vessel at the end of Matthew that Jesus chooses to use right. to represent him. And Paul in in 2 Corinthians talks about us being ambassadors, right? And an ambassador carries with them the full endorsement of the, the territory that they represent and, and the full power of the territory that they represent. And so the words that they say and the actions that they do, they are binding in the place where they are acting in behalf of. And so while we are not necessarily the direct presence of Christ in a, in a way we kind of are. And so I, I hear what you're saying that like we have the Paul story, Jesus can act without a person, right? He can, he can get our attention without using his creation. 
He can blind us on a road to somewhere and speak to us directly and challenge us. Absolutely. And yet he has still called us to participate and invited us into participation in his mission to call people to him. And so it's like, yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like in, in doing so, if we allow the presence to depart, we're acting alone. And so it's, it's that whole like being prepared, like staying in his presence through all these, like, you know, he's giving all these warnings uh, or these like, do not be deceived statements. And so like, if we allow the things of either our flesh or the things of this world to like creep in and have their way, it's easy to try to operate outside of the presence of God. And so it's so important that we don't try to, you know, it's, it's definitely a weighing of it out. Like we have a part, God chooses to work through us, but don't think like we're the end all be all. The only part. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so just a moment ago, you you talked about this idea of being prepared. And uh, when I was studying a little bit for our conversation today, uh, I actually read um, something that I think is very pertinent to this conversation and and how we view this passage and, and where it maybe takes us in the conversation going forward. Um, and so in, in one of the commentaries that I was reading, this these it's a two sentence statement is made. It says, one thing is certain being prepared is not about looking for signs or calculating days. It is about remaining a faithful follower of Jesus, the Messiah. And so this particular commentator was, was talking about how, um, rather than getting caught up on interpreting the signs or trying to, glean understanding for when the end will be here, it's most appropriate for us to read this conversation that Jesus is having with his followers through the lens of Jesus calling them to be prepared through their faithfulness and their commitment to him. So when we think about, you know, being prepared, um, as for us now and here in this moment, what does that mean to us? When I, when I think about that, I think about this, this vertizontal life that we talk about so often, that we are listening to what Jesus is talking to us, and we're living that out to the people around us. And there also needs to be that community of accountability, where that we, we are in community with people that know us, that we are open with, that can help us to know, you know, to help us make sure that we are we are still on the same track. Um, but I really, really believe that that vertizontal, um, vertizontal living is really how we're going to be able to be able to pre- be prepared. That we are going to listen to what Jesus says to us, and then we're going to do. We're going to obey with what He says. So I think the question today is. Are you listening to him? Are you living out the life that he has called you to? I think when you were saying that, though, it, it's, it doesn't allow time for the distraction of all the external things. So Jesus was talking about all these things that were external to him. 
And so when we're focused on Jesus and talking to Jesus and only responding and saying what he wants us to say, it doesn't allow for us to be distracted in signs of things that are going on around us. We're just living as if Jesus is right here with us because he is. And it also doesn't allow us to be deceived because we are in communication with the truth. And so when we are hearing the truth, even the greatest of deceivers will be quickly identified as such. That's crazy because it's like a playing out of... You, Jesus could almost take this and make a parable out of the the leaving of the temple and their focus then on the temple buildings. Because their focus is on all the things all the other stuff instead of being on him. Mm -hmm. And so, but Jesus in his loving way calls their attention. So you, he meets them where they're at. So you like these things. So you think these are neat. Let me tell you about how temporary these things are. And I think it's important for us even now, the things that are around, you know, the signs, the wonders, the things that are going around us, that is not at all where our attention should be. We, we have to keep our attention on Jesus. There's no other way. There's absolutely no other way. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.